Welcome. Subject of this talk is one that just has to be included in any series of talks on Christian Muslim apologetics. Because a very popular theme in the Muslim world and any Christian witnessing to Muslims is going to come up against this time and time again. It's a favorite Muslim conviction that Muhammad is foretold in the Bible. I used to hear it in the early days of outreach in South Africa in two out of three homes. It was You just knew it. It was predictable. It was going to come up. And the first time I heard it, I laughed at it and I said, what? I've never heard of anything like that in my life. And then I got quoted a few scriptures. And at first I was shaken and I was given in a couple of arguments and they sounded quite rational. And it forced me to have to go and look at the subject very carefully. And I hope that the points I'm giving you today will be useful because they're going to cover the key issues that Muslim raise and I hope that these are the most effective ways that you can answer them that I'll be giving you here. Firstly, there's a verse in the Quran which triggers the whole Muslim search for prophecies in the Old and New Testament to Muhammad and it is Surah 7 verse 157. Those who follow the apostle, the unlettered prophet, will find him mentioned in the books that are with them, in the Torah and in the Injil, in, in what to us is the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Muslims start searching. They've done so for centuries. This goes back to oh, almost the time of Muhammad himself. As soon as they got hold of Christian scriptures and could read them, they searched the Old Testament. They searched the New Testament for these prophecies. And they've come up with all sorts of texts that they think they can twist and twine to and predict the coming of Muhammad. But there are two main themes that they use, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, and that's what we're going to focus on. Firstly, this verse out of Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. And this is the first one. God said to the Jewish people through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And when Muslims see this text, and when they found it, they thought, there it is, a prophet. That's our prophet, the, the ultimate prophet, the last one. And when they saw this, this prediction of a prophet like Moses to come, they started looking for all the similarities that they could find to try and prove that this was the prophet foretold. Some of them are just shallow. Uh, I've read Muslim publications that say that, well, Muhammad had a human father. Moses had a human father. So this passage can't be referring to Jesus, who seems to be the only other obvious candidate, because Jesus had no human father. And then I've heard other people say, well, you see, Muhammad died naturally and Moses died naturally, but um, Jesus died violently. So, you know, same point. And then Muhammad lived a long life and Moses lived a long life, but Jesus was gone by the age of 33. I don't quite see how this proves for a minute that the uh, prophet of Islam is foretold in this passage. Just drawing likenesses like these, as I've said in other lectures, doesn't prove anything. Similarities prove nothing. I've even heard one go like this. Muhammad's name begins with an M. The name of Moses begins with an M, while Jesus' name begins with a J, so it must be Muhammad. Well, this is when you're really getting down the drain. But there are some arguments I've heard from Muslims <clears throat> that carry a little bit of weight. In all fairness, Muslim arguments on these texts deserve to be answered. Uh, they're well presented, 
And the first time I heard them, I realized that they needed to be researched and they needed to be answered. I'll give you three of them. And in some books you find this. Firstly, Moses and Muhammad lived normal lives in every way while Jesus' life was exceptional. In other words, he was born of a virgin woman. He ascended to heaven. Uh, almost everything about him just seems to be different. Uh, both died normal deaths. I've mentioned that one to you at the end of their lives. While Jesus was crucified and said to have risen from the dead, Jesus remained unmarried for all his life, whereas Moses and Muhammad were both married. Second argument you hear is that Moses and Muhammad became the leaders of their people, which Jesus never did. In the later years of their lives, after initially being rejected, the Jews rejected Moses and he had to flee into the wilderness. The Arabs rejected Muhammad, so he had to flee to Yathrib. Then eventually they became both the political and religious leaders of their nations, and they died as the undisputed rulers of their people. Whereas Jesus only had a few followers at the end of his life, having been rejected by the chief priests and his people. And a third argument, their successors both conquered the land of Palestine. Um, after Moses died, Joshua victoriously led the Jewish uh, armies, the people of Israel, into Canaan, into Palestine, and conquered it. And the second Khalifa of Islam, after the death of Muhammad, Umar, he did the same. He conquered Jerusalem as well and settled it for the Muslim people for centuries thereafter. But still, similarities. It's all it is. And I can tell you as a rule of thumb, similarities, whether we're talking about science, whether we're talking about religion, similarities prove nothing. You've got to go a lot further. You've got to get into it and say, wait a minute, where does this connection come? Where do we join? Where do we connect the prophet that God was predicting in this passage? with whoever we want it to be. It's got to be some kind of further evidence to define him and to determine him. Moses was a unique prophet. We know that. He mediated a covenant between God and his people, which all the prophets of Israel that followed simply had to emulate. <clears throat> so we have to ask ourselves, in what way was the prophet to come like Moses? Obviously in his uniqueness. Otherwise, you could apply this text to any prophet, to Joshua, to Solomon, to David, to Isaiah. You could say any one of them could have been candidates for it. There must have been, there were many prophets who followed. So there must have been something very special about the personality to come of whom God was speaking that emulated um, Moses and that fulfilled the prophecy. You see, the Christian can reverse the position when you're coming with similarities. We can say, well... Jesus was like Moses in a way that Muhammad wasn't. For example, Moses left Egypt to fulfill his purpose by taking the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And at this, that's uh, Hebrews 11.27, by faith Moses forsook Egypt. And then again in Matthew 2.15 we read, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And Jesus was brought back into the land of Canaan the same way. Now, you see, similarities prove nothing. You can, what's good here for the goose is good for the gander. What were the unique features? Well, I'm going to give you three, which the Bible tells you were unique about Moses and which you naturally have got to find in the prophet to come. Firstly, Moses mediated a covenant, a very big, very embracing covenant between God and his people. <clears throat> we read in the same passage of prophecy we're reviewing, 
Deuteronomy 18, that God said to them, I'll raise up a prophet for you, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly. When they said to Moses, just let God speak to us through a mediator. We don't want to hear him directly. That's Moses 18 and verse 16. Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai for the people. And when he anointed the book of the law and the people with the sprinkled blood of calves and goats, as well as the tabernacle, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Hebrews 9.20, quoted in the New Testament, and it was confirmed. So you would expect to find that the prophet to follow would have emulated Moses. That covenant which God made with Moses surely would be repeated in a new covenant through the prophet to come. Secondly, in a very special way, God, Moses knew God face to face. Now, this is a unique thing because Abraham never had this knowledge. In fact, nor did David, nor did Solomon, nor did anyone after him, nor did Muhammad for that matter, until we come to Jesus. But let me mention to you what it was. For 40 years unabated, God spoke to Moses directly in such a way that even his face shone while he was speaking to him. There was a cloud before the mercy seat and, every, and the people saw that every time Moses went in to speak with God, the cloud shone and the face of Moses shone and he had to put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from seeing the end of the fading glory. So Exodus 33 verse 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And the Quran amazingly confirms this relationship because it says in Surah 4, 164, and to Moses, Allah spoke directly, implying, which he didn't do to anyone else at the time in the same way. Uh, we contrast this with another verse where the Quran says, It is not fitting for a man that Allah should speak to him except by inspiration or from behind a veil or by the sending of a messenger. And yet in this one case, we have this exception that God spoke to him directly as the Quran says, face to face, confirms that unique feature. So we'd expect to find the same thing in the prophet to follow. And then thirdly, Moses performed spectacular signs and wonders, really dramatic miracles. For many years, such as bringing the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, parting the waters, the daily manna which came down from heaven, no prophet could be said to be the one like Moses unless he could do the same. And we've seen... Uh, elsewhere, if you look through the life of Muhammad, you look, uh, especially as the biography is recorded in any way in the Quran, you'll find that he did not perform any miracles. There are quite a few verses in the Quran that establish this. But there's one verse in the Quran which really gets to the core of this. Uh, the people say of uh, Muhammad in Surah 28, verse 48, Why are not signs sent to him like those that were sent to Moses? So the language here is just so uncannily similar to the language in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. And the Quran itself says, why did he not have, Muhammad, any miracles like those which were sent to Moses? You see, Deuteronomy 34, verse 10 and 11, the very book which records that verse, I will raise up for you a prophet like them, emphasizes the points that I'm making here. It says, there has not arisen a prophet in, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders 
which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land. So it's clear. You, that was, those were the signs. That's what you would expect to find in the prophet to come. Well, none of these apply to Muhammad. Muhammad did not mediate a covenant. Muhammad certainly did not know God face to face. Uh, even when the Quran, which is said to be the only miracle, came to him, it came through the medium of the angel Jibril, Gabriel. And Muhammad performed no signs or wonders, as the Quran itself says, certainly none like those that Moses performed. Let's have a look at Jesus. Well, this passage of Scripture is applied to Jesus twice in the New Testament. When Peter stood before the whole crowd of Jews gathered on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, he said to them that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the prophets had foretold and quoted this verse to show that Moses was, had, in fact, predicted the coming of Jesus. Stephen did the same on his, when he was brought up before the Jewish council. And he too, in accusing them of being stiff-necked and rejecting everything that the prophets had said, quoted this verse, Deuteronomy 18, in Acts 7.37, to show that Moses was one of those who had foretold the coming of Jesus. Now let's have a look at the likenesses between Jesus and Moses when it comes to covenant, knowing God face to face, and performing signs and wonders. The whole of the Old Testament scripture knows only one other major covenant than the one which Moses made with God and the people of Israel. And it's found in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34, where God said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers because they broke that covenant. Now, this is the new covenant I'm going to make. In other words, I'm going to put aside the covenant of Moses and I'm going to make a new one. I'll put my law in their hearts. I'll write it on their minds. I'll be their God. They will know me. They will be my people. I will forgive their sins. I'll remember their misdeeds no more. Jesus was the mediator of that new covenant. As we know from Hebrews 9 verse 15, that's exactly what it says. Uh, when Jesus... Uh, on the night before he was crucified, broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and gave them the wine to drink. He said, this is my body given for you and this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many and the forgiveness of sins, making it quite plain that through his death and resurrection, he was bringing the new covenant that would break open the door for God to forgive our sins, forget them completely, make us his people, put his spirit in us and so on. Watch this comparison between the two. Exodus 24, verse 8. Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But then you have those words again. This time I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 11:25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The covenant was of the same dramatic significance as the one God had made with Moses. And they're the only two. We know them today as the Old and the New Covenants. And that's why we refer to the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, we refer to our Christian Scripture as the New Testament. So Jesus fulfilled that key facet of Moses' life and feature that we mentioned earlier. Secondly, Jesus knew God face to face. 
I know him, he said. I came from him and he sent me. John 7 verse 29. Again, John 6 verse 46. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father except him who came from the Father. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Jesus made it quite plain that he knew the Father literally face to face. And one of the things that shows this, as I mentioned earlier, is that, as it says here in Exodus 24, 9, 29 to 30, 34, 29 to 30, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. Now, you won't find that of any other prophet anywhere in the Old Testament. Moses' own face shone. Oh, you have times when you see the glory of God as when Solomon dedicated the temple and a cloud filled the temple and the glory of God was manifested. But there was never another occasion when you see the light of God just simply reflected off a man's face. Never is that recorded in Islam ever happening to Muhammad. When it comes to Jesus, we read these words of his transfiguration. Matthew 17 verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. It was even greater than Moses, because where Moses just reflected the light of God, Jesus generated it. And his whole being shone and was a fulfillment of the new covenant which God had promised. So here too we can see that Jesus knew God face to face, spoke with him face to face, as we know. Jesus looked up to heaven in John 12 on one occasion and said, Father, glorify your name. God, the Father, spoke back directly in the hearing of the people. I glorified it and I'll glorify it again. Face-to-face -face relationship. Thirdly, Jesus performed great miracles, not only similar to those that Moses performed, but as with the previous one, even superior to them. Both Jesus and Moses had the had power to control the sea, which was unique. This wasn't a sort of the kind of miracles that Elijah and Elisha performed. They actually controlled the elements. Exodus 14 verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. Oh, if you can find anything in Islam where Muhammad perpetuated this, come and tell me. Other prophets, as I said, had power over the rivers. Joshua 3.13, 2 Kings 2.14. Uh, but no one could emulate this miracle until Jesus came. And in Mark 4, 39, he did so. A raging storm came up on the Sea of Galilee that the disciples of Jesus were worried that they were going to drown. And Jesus just simply stood up and just put his hand out and said, Peace, be still. And immediately the whole sea just calmed. And his disciples said, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So you see, not only emulating the um, miracles of Moses, but perhaps even exceeding them. Particularly here, where Jesus one day performed an outstanding miracle. He took just five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed no less than 5,000 men besides women and children with it, and there was enough left over to fill 12 baskets. Now, interestingly, the people said when they saw this miracle in John 6.14, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now that's interesting because Moses had fed the people with manna from heaven every single day and they expected the prophet to come to fulfill the same kind of miracles Moses performed. And when they saw this, they said, there you are. He fulfills the same miracle. In fact, he even supersedes the miracles of Moses when he does something 
in John 9, where even the person who benefited said, nothing like this has ever happened before. Disciples, uh, sorry, the Pharisees came to this man whose eyes had been opened by Jesus. He'd been born blind. And they said to him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. We are disciples of Moses. We don't know where this man has come from. And then the man, blind man looks at them and he says, well, this is a marvel. He says, you don't know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. Never since the beginning of the world has anything like this ever been heard of. Just by implication, you're disciples of Moses. Well, Moses never did this. Jesus did it. So you can see that if he didn't equal it, he beat it. The miracles, the relationship with God face to face, the covenant he mediated, all fulfilled the crucial elements that Deuteronomy 34 spoke of that you would look to find in the prophet to come. But what Muslims then do is they go to a little part of that text, Deuteronomy 18, 18, and they bring up another argument. It says, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren. And they say, well, who are their brethren? And the Muslims say, well, you know, just go back to the beginning. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And the Israelites were descended from Isaac. So must be coming from their brethren. The brothers of the Israelites must mean the Ishmaelites. So you would expect to find the prophet that uh, Moses foretold coming from the Arabs. Sounds good. Here we go. Similarities again. Sounds good. Apart from the fact, of course, that even Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and two different lines descended from them. Well, if the Muslim argument is true, you could have looked for the uh, prophet to come from their brethren, from the Edomites who uh, descended from Esau. But you have to go back a few verses to once again get to the core of this, get real evidence as to who God is speaking of. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 1 to 2, right at the beginning of the chapter, as this whole subject is introduced, the Lord says these words, The Levitical priests, that is all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. And then it puts it into just a slight variance and says, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. Now you see who God is talking about. Their brethren means any one of the other tribes of Israel than the Levites. The Levitical tribes will have no portion with the other tribes of Israel. They will have no inheritance among their brethren. That's who they are. And then God says, but I will raise up a prophet for them, the Levites, from among their brethren. Meaning from one of the other tribes of Israel. It's the only thing it can mean. Once you look at the evidence, once you get to the core of it, that's where it goes. That's where it gets clearly directed. And you find elsewhere in the Old Testament that the expression, their brethren, is always used to define one of the other tribes of Israel other than the one being spoken of. In Judges 20 verse 13, you read these words, But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. It doesn't say the Ishmaelites or anyone else. It means the other tribes of Israel. Deuteronomy 17 verse 5, one from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Ishmaelites were foreigners. The brothers referred to are the other tribes of Israel, not some other nation. And Jesus came from the brethren of the Levites. If he'd come from the, uh, from the same tribe, you could have said, well, he doesn't qualify. Because this is clear, the prophecy is relating to one of the other tribes of Israel 
other than the Levites. But if you read Luke 3, verse 33, you can see through the genealogy of Jesus and in Matthew's gospel that he was descended through David back to Judah, came from the tribe of Judah. Hebrews 7, verse 14 even makes the point. Now it is evident that our Savior was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So now you can see Jesus came from one of the brethren of the, is the Levites, namely the tribe of Judah. And then just in passing, the Muslims go into every aspect of this verse where God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak whatever I command him. And Muslims say, well, you see, that's what Muhammad did when the Quran came to him. But this could apply to any prophet. Uh, Jeremiah 1.9, the Lord said to him, behold, I put my words in your mouth. And so on it goes. And Jesus in John 12.49 said, for I have not spoken of my own authority, my Father has given me commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Now that doesn't really help much. It doesn't help to identify the prophet to come. What does identify him, as I said to you, is the three unique features of Moses' life. And then also their brethren being referred to is clearly one of the other tribes of Israel. Well, that one was quite easy to dispose of. I'm now coming to the second one, and that is Jesus and the promise of the comforter to come. Muslims say it is Muhammad. I'm sure you're aware of these prophecies. They're found all over John's Gospel, between John 14 and John 16. Four of them, in fact. But I'm going to mention to you just two of them. Firstly, John 14, 26. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then again, John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And you find that in John 14, 16 and John 15, 26 as well. And so Muslims say, well, there you are. There's the prediction of Jesus in the Injil, in the Gospel, in the New Testament. The Comforter is Muhammad. I don't know how many times I've heard that. And when you ask them, well, why do you say that he was Muhammad? This is the answer you get. Firstly, Muhammad led the world into all the truth. See, Jesus said, I have many things to say to you now, but you can't receive them. And the comforter comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So that is what our holy prophet Muhammad did. He brought the final truth to us in the Quran. Muhammad is claimed to have done this just as the Quranic discourses at the length on the last day, Yawm al-Akhir, resurrection, the final judgment and the destiny of the human race to come. These are things that Muslims say Muhammad foretold and brought the fullness and the final revelation to the world and so he is the comforter who was promised. And then secondly, Muslims argue, heard so many of them in different categories, that the masculine gender is used in these verses and therefore it must be a prophet who is foretold. It can't be the Holy Spirit who Christians say it is. They say, and I've heard Ahmadidat, he used to do this when he was having lectures on the subject, he used to put his fingers up. He will glorify me. He will not speak on his own authority. He will guide you into all the truth. He will reveal to you things to come. He, 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 until eventually he gets eight. And he says, eight times you find Jesus using the masculine. So he must be referring to a male prophet. Can't be referring to the Spirit of God because God is not masculine. And then 
and so on it goes. And also because thirdly, they say the comforter was to come after Jesus. <coughs> Jesus had to go away first and only then could the comforter come. They say, well, this cannot be the Holy Spirit because according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit was always there. In Psalm 51 verse 11, Jesus said, uh, sorry, not Jesus, David prayed to God and said these words, Create in me a new heart, O God, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So he was there with David all the time. And then again, they say in Luke 1.15, says, The angel said to the mother of John the Baptist, Yahya alayhi salam in Islam, said to him, He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. So how can you say the Holy Spirit still has to come, the Comforter, when John the Baptist was filled with it? All right, well, good arguments. Let's answer them. Firstly, in these passages in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is clearly defined as a comforter. Uh, John 14, verse 26. But the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Uh, so it's identified, no question about it. Firstly, in John 13, 1 right through to 16, verse 33. You find that Jesus, speaking of the Comforter, said that he will bring to your remembrance everything that I've taught you here and now. And that's exactly what you see in that passage. I mean, for a man to remember a discourse like the one Jesus gave that last night recorded in these four chapters was quite remarkable. John remembered it. Spirit of God brought it all back to his remembrance and he recorded it. That's exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. When you come to the masculine gender well you find all over the bible that the masculine gender is used for god deuteronomy 10 verse 21 said moses said to the people he is your praise he is your god um, it's a common thing in the old and new testament so god is always referred to as he or him masculine gender so therefore the spirit of god can be used must obviously be referred to in the same way can't say that this must be a prophet just because the masculine gender is there. In fact, if you look through Surah 59, verses 22 to 24 in the Quran, you find these words. Meaning, he is Allah besides whom there is no God. In other words, to translate it literally, he is Allah and besides him there is no God like him. Begins with huwa ends with huwa. The neutral in Arabic is here, but huwa is masculine. I want to tell you just a little story of an occasion where I was in Durban in South Africa and I went into the Islamic propagation centers, uh, a little uh, sort of what would you call a television room that they used to have on the street front and people could walk in and watch copies of the debates that they'd had over the years. And while I was just looking around through the literature, one of the representatives came up to me and he said to me, uh, can I help you? And I said, oh, don't worry, I'm just looking at booklets. And he said, um, are you a Christian? And I said, oh, yes. And he said, um, why are you a Christian? So I said, played along with him. I said, well, because I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. He's graciously redeemed me. And for that reason, I'll give him my life. Hmm. Do you know that Jesus foretold the coming of our holy prophet Muhammad? And I just said, what? I said, where do you get that from? And he said, it's in the Bible, the comforter. I said, no, that's the Holy Spirit. No, he says, can't be the Holy Spirit. 
He says, Jesus said, and he went like did that, he will glorify me, he will this, he will do that, he will bring to your remembrance, and so on. And he says, eight times in that passage, they use the word he. So it must be the prophet Muhammad, it cannot be Jesus. So then I thought, okay, I led on to him that I knew a bit more about Islam than he might think. And I said to him, all right, I said, how well do you know the Quran? Oh, no, I know it well. So I said, right, let me give you these words, ones I gave you. I said, huwa laqulladhi la ilaha ilahuwa huwa rahmanu rahim huwa kudusa salamu mu'minu, so on it goes. In the passage, Surah 59, 22 to 24, which I read to him in full, I said seven times I did it like did that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He is Allah. He is the compassionate. There's no God like him. I said, no, I said, if you can use the masculine in the Quran for God so regularly, why can't we do so the same in the Bible? <laughs> she looked a bit stunned at me. <laughs> but you know, the only way to handle Muslims is to know how to answer their objections. And uh, I think knowing the Quran, in that case, at least being able to quote the passage, certainly brought the point home to him. The Holy Spirit is clearly the one whom Jesus promised when he said a comforter was to come. Jesus promised the comforter to his own disciples. I mean, that's quite clear. He wouldn't have spoken about him otherwise in that night before he left because he was about to go away from them. And he said, it's to your advantage that I go away, John 16 verse 7. Because if I don't go away, the comforter won't come. So if the comforter was only to come 600 years later, how could that possibly have been to their advantage? Um, I will send him to you, Jesus said. That's clear in John 16 verse 7. If I go, I will, I will send him. Not, not God sending a prophet. I will send the Spirit of God to you. Second person of the triune God, I'll send the third person directly to you. And as you know, from Acts, the, the, on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit came down and filled them all. So there's no question about it, that it was the Holy Spirit of whom Jesus was speaking. Let me go to another point here. In the Quran, this prophecy of a coming of a comforter seems to have been somewhat repeated in Surah 61 and verse 6. The Quran says, And remember, Jesus, son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, I am a messenger of Allah to you, confirming what is before me from the Torah and announcing tidings of a messenger to come after me, whose name shall be Ahmad. Surah 61, verse 6. And so Muslims try to make something out of this as well. And they say, well, here, you've got proof from the Quran that Jesus foretold the coming of Muhammad. And it seems to be in very similar language to the comforter in the New Testament. And some of them have even gone further. And they say, you know, when you look at the word used for uh, the comforter in the Greek, well, now we learn something, they say, because the word there is parakletos. And they say, you know, in Greek, the word periklutos means one who means praise or one who is praised. So they said, so it's obvious what's happened here, that Jesus didn't talk about a comforter to come. He talked about a praised one to come, a periklutos. And that means Ahmad, which means the same. comes from the root words HMD in, in Arabic, which means praise. And first time I heard that argument, I thought, well, once again, similarities, but sounds reasonable. But again, firstly, periklutos is not a biblical word. It's found nowhere in the New Testament at all, which is a Greek text. Secondly, 
The word just does not fit into the context. The defining one whom Jesus promised was primarily to be an advocate, a counselor. Uh, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. In other words, he will not draw attention to himself. He will glorify me, Jesus said in John 16 verse 14, meaning he would give praise to Jesus through the witness of his followers rather than claim any praise for himself. Well, I'm afraid I don't see how this can possibly fit uh, on the idea of a praised one when he's drawing the attention away from himself. Um, the word can never have been periklutos. The only word that fits the context of what Jesus was teaching is the word we find there, parakletos. And in every manuscript of the New Testament, that's what you find, a comforter. Only word used, parakletos, one who is with you and one who will be in you. And at this point, I've always retorted to Muslims who've said this. I've said, you know, you guys accuse us of changing the Bible and what we haven't done in history. And they still tell us that uh, we're changing the Bible to this day. And I smile at that because uh, we have so many texts of the Bible, so many translations. I don't see how that can possibly, possibly happen. But I've said, this time, you're the guys who are changing it. I said, you can't find what you want there, so you twist it around. Take the word parakletos and you'd like to cut it out. and You'd like to put a variant reading in there and put the word periklutos in. Just so that you can fit it with your word akmat. So I said you can't prove your point from the biblical texts as they stand. Well, let's just have a look in closing at just why the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Before I do, I just want to go back to one point that I mentioned that the Muslims made. And they still make to this day. And that is that... The comforter was already there. He was, uh, he filled John the Baptist. He was present with David. So how could the comforter be said to still have to come? Well, the fact of the matter is that Jesus spoke of something different. He spoke of the comforter actually not only coming into us, not only filling us, not only being with us, but actually regenerating us so that we could be born of God. I'm born of human parents, mother and a father. I have their DNA. Uh, I'm flesh and blood like they are. I have the same color of skin, and uh, I could never have another mother or father having once been born of my, uh, <coughs> my own line of heritage from which I come. But when I was 23 years of age, I was born again. And that is a different thing to just being filled with the Spirit at a particular moment to prophesy perhaps, or even throughout your life to have the Spirit of God with you to give you inspiration. No, no. Christian believers are different. We are born of God. We are born of the Spirit of God. Every single one of us actually is regenerated by the Spirit. We are united to Him in such a way that you can't split that unity. Even if I as a Christian wanted to say to the Holy Spirit, look, I've had enough. Uh, you know, 30 years you've been with me, but actually I'm tired of this Christian experience. And even if I die and I go to the wrong place, I'm prepared to risk that. But please, I'd like to ask you to leave now. <laughs> he won't. He won't go. We are united to him. And you can't break this unity. No, you can split the atom, but you can't split this relationship. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, if I don't go, the comforter will not come. I have been with you, but he will be in you. He will actually regenerate you and transform you. And that's why Jesus called him the parakletos, the counselor, the advocate, the comforter, the one who is with you, right in your inner being, to be your companion wherever you go. As I've often said to, to people even outside the Muslim context, 
The difference between the Old and the New Covenants can be summed up simply in a comparison. In the Old Covenant, when it was given, the people of Israel saw the cloud above the mercy seat by day which shone by like a fire by night. And whenever that moved, they had to move. But whenever it stayed, they had to stay. So it was simple. As God goes, so you go. Wherever His glory moves, you move. And if it stays in a place, you stay. But when we are born of the Holy Spirit, it's the other way around. Wherever I go, God goes. goes with me. If I move, He moves with me. If I stay, He stays with me. That's the whole difference between the two covenants. And that's the glory of this comforter, this counselor, this advocate. Paraclete literally means someone who clings to you. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Let's have a look. <clears throat> Jesus said, I will send you another comforter. Never said another praised one, another periclutos. No, I will, I've been your comforter because I've been with you, but the Holy Spirit will be in you, another comforter. And he was promised, as I said, to the disciples of Jesus, meaning that he would come back in their lifetime, or it would happen at some time, very soon after the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Then Jesus said, he will be with you forever. I'm quoting here from John 16. Muhammad only lived for 62 years, but the Spirit of God has been with the Christian believing community ever since he came on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, the world cannot receive him. Only you can. But according to the Quran in Surah 34 and verse 28, Muhammad was a messenger to all mankind. <clears throat> well, be that as it may, it contradicts what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would only come to true believers. You can receive him, but the world cannot receive him. You know him, Jesus said. Well, how could anybody, how could the disciples of Jesus at that time have known Muhammad? No, they didn't. Muhammad only came 600 years later. The way they knew him, because Jesus had been anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He was right there on the person of Jesus. So they'd become familiar with the Spirit of God, his presence, his anointing and his work. It was right there. Jesus said he dwells with you. John 1 verse 12, and, sorry, 32 and 33 says, John the Baptist speaking, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven and it remained on him, on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And that's how the Spirit of God was living with them. It was there in the person of Jesus in their midst. But Jesus finished it all off by saying, And he will be in you, which is the death knell to the Muslim argument that this is a prediction of the coming of Muhammad. The Greek word is just a little word, en, E-N, but it means right inside. Romans 5 verse 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that is the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying. I'm sorry for my Muslim friends, but there's no evidence anywhere in the Old and New Testaments that Muhammad was ever foretold either by Moses or Jesus. Moses predicted the coming of the second person of the Trinity in human form to redeem us. Jesus predicted the coming of the third person into our human forms to, in, to enliven us, to make us true to God, and to apply 
the guarantee of our salvation to us so that we may know it. And we thank him for that.